Good morning. Before we begin, I just want to reiterate again, our college retreat is in two weeks, and uh, the sign-up deadline is a week from today. Uh, We would love to have you all there. We're going to be talking about relationships from a biblical perspective, Uh, and this is not just for those of you who are dating somebody or are engaged or are thinking about asking somebody out, can't get that word out, this is for everybody. Uh, Even if you never get married in your life, we have still been made as relational beings, people who need to know how to relate to one another, how to relate to the opposite sex. And so we're going to talk a lot about how has God made us as relational beings and how can we place this area of relationships in the context of our walk with God. And then we will talk some about dating and sex and relationships and those things. But we would love to have you guys there. Again, don't let cost be the reason you don't go, but uh, we do have scholarships. Uh, Just go to grace-bible.org, sign up. We would love to see you all there. And uh, I'm going to read before we start from the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. We'll kind of be all over the place this morning, but I'm going to read these before we pray. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." Would you pray with me? Father, as we just sang, we confess that you alone can rescue us from death, can rescue us from hell. And we praise you that in Jesus Christ, you have provided a way. Father, I pray that if there are any men or women here this morning who do not yet know Jesus Christ, that this would be the morning where they understand what you have done in him and believe in you, trust in you for eternal life. For those of us who know you, I pray we would be not only sobered by the reality of hell that we're about to talk about, Father, but that we would be motivated as well and moved to see the world and your people as you see them. God, we pray open our minds, help us understand your word, move in our hearts to remove our doubts, our fears, our distractions, and then move in our bodies and our hands and feet that we might obey you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you have had to tell somebody uh, an honest truth that was hard to say. Some of you relish being in that position. Your roommate comes up and says, do you like my new haircut? And you say, absolutely not. You look like a circus clown, right? And you like being able to do that. You like the position of being brutally honest, and maybe that's your reputation, and so you plow forward honestly with no regard for the other person's feelings. On the other hand, many people uh, are nervous about sharing the truth, even if a person desperately needs to hear it, and so they pull back from sharing what is true. There is a way, though, some of you have, of sharing what is true but in a loving way, in the context of relationship, uh, because you care about another person. Uh, My wife is able to do this often in my life, particularly in the area of fashion, right? I will come out and she will say, Matt, um, you cannot wear a blue shirt with black pants because you'll look like an old man, right? You shouldn't do that. And she can say it though in a way that I know she cares about me, right? She doesn't want me to make a fool of myself. And so there's a number of ways that we can talk about truth, but our hope is that when we speak the truth, we do so out of love. 
Now, we're going to talk about a very difficult topic this morning. It's a topic that none of us really like to think about even, much less talk about, but it's the topic of hell. And uh, we've been talking about heaven and hell really all semester, but this is the uh, week that we've really devoted to talk about what is hell? What is it like? What does the Bible say? And some of you have seen men and women who have shared the truth of hell in a terrible, unloving way, perhaps with uh, signs that say, go to hell or burn in hell. Some of you have seen that, and so as a result, you want to pull away from the whole discussion. On the other hand, uh, the opposite extreme would be simply to pretend it doesn't exist and never talk about it at all, never even think about it. In fact, uh, that's what a lot of Christians really want to do. A lot of people want to say, hell doesn't even exist. I read a survey this week from 2008 by the Pew research uh, survey group, and they, they did a study, and they asked people, how many of you believe in heaven? And of the people they asked, 71% of the respondents said they believed in heaven. And then they said, how many of you believe in hell? And only 59% said they believe in hell. There's a big disparity between those who believe in heaven and those who believe in hell. When you ask people, do you believe that hell is a place of eternal torment? Only about 30% of the respondents say that hell is a real place of eternal torment. Then if you ask people, do you think you're going to hell? Only about three to 5% of them will say yes. Very few people actually say, yeah, I think that's where I'm headed. And uh, I would imagine that nobody in this room probably thinks that way. But what we want to do is look at what does the Bible say on this topic? My guess is that most of you have never heard a full sermon preached on the topic of hell. And if you have, even if you have been in a church that's an evangelical church, my guess is it's not a regular staple of the sermons. It doesn't come up every week. And what's interesting about that is that there was a time in the history of the United States when that was different. I asked some friends this week if they had ever read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, and many of you read this in public school, in junior high. I know I had to read it in junior high, some of you in high school. Uh, others of you have read it on your own time. But let me just uh, read a little bit of this. Jonathan Edwards was an American preacher and revivalist back in the 1700s, one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest minds in our nation's history, actually. But here's an excerpt from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you rose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. 
O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you were held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator, nothing to lay hold of save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you have ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Have a nice day, right? Most of you read that in junior high and probably the conclusion that the teacher drew was that uh, the Puritans were angry, uh, bitter people who hated everyone and they preached fire and brimstone. All right, and the reality is, we're going to look a little bit more actually later of that sermon. The reality is that they were men and women who believed that hell was a real place. And Edward's motivation, as you read through the entirety of that sermon, is to warn people of the true wrath of God that burns against those who don't believe in Jesus and who have offended him. And yet, if I were to preach a sermon like that today, my guess is that uh, many of you would be offended and some of you might even leave. We don't like to talk about the idea of hell. It is not a popular concept. And yet, in our culture in the last, I'd say, five or six months, a few things came up that made me think, maybe we need to talk about it from a biblical perspective. All right, one was uh, back in May uh, when Osama bin Laden uh, was captured and killed, There were a number of protesters that stood outside of the White House holding signs that said, Welcome to hell, OBL. And people rejoiced and and cheered at the fact that this man who'd done so much evil was finally getting justice. And they even cheered that he was going to be tormented eternally in hell. And for some people that raised a question of, is that okay to feel that way? And right around the same time, there was a pastor from the Northwest, a man named Rob Bell, who wrote a book called Love Wins. And uh, Rob Bell's thesis in the book is, no, God does not torment people forever and ever in hell. He doesn't do it. And there's always an out. You can always leave hell by the same door you walked into it for eternity. And so that's what he means when he says love wins, that nobody ends up there forever. God will be reconciled to everybody. Uh, It was interesting this past week watching all the news reports about Steve Jobs and the death of Steve Jobs and seeing Christians write about it and trying to wrestle with how do we uh, reconcile the idea of a man who's done wonderful things in his life and yet doesn't seem to have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we reconcile that in our minds? And so there were all of these things written about, is he in heaven? Is he in hell? What do we do with that? And I think it's a topic we have to talk about. And one of the reasons is because Jesus actually talked about hell a great deal. More than anybody else in the New Testament, Jesus talks about hell, which seems counterintuitive to us because we think of Jesus as always being meek and mild and always preaching love above everything else. And the reality is, though, Jesus talked about hell a lot. We're going to look at a lot of those passages this morning. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the justice of God. How is it fair that God would send a person to heaven for eternity or send them to hell for eternity based on the decisions they make in this life? I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We're going to talk about some of that this morning. But we're not going to go into great detail about is it fair, is it unfair. The main point of this morning's sermon is to look simply at what does the Bible say about hell? What is it like? Who goes there? Why does it exist? And uh, is it avoidable? Is it something that 
we can avoid or get out of or work around. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to see a few things about hell. All right. The first thing is this. Hell is just. Biblically speaking, hell is just. And what, what I mean by that is this, that hell is God's punishment against those who have sinned against him. It is God's just and righteous punishment against those who have sinned. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Romans chapter one a little bit. And we talked about how Romans chapter one lays out the idea that everybody has sinned against God. Everybody is running away from God and it's a form of rebellion. Every single one of us in this room have looked at God and said, I I don't want to follow you. I don't want to do what you want me to do. And so Romans 1 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of mankind because he's wicked and he suppresses the truth. And the wrath of God is coming. And the idea of Romans 1 is that God will eventually punish all who have sinned against him. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. That is eternal separation from God. And we have a hard time with that, I think, because we're really not comfortable with the concept of punishment, are we? When I discipline my children, if they do something wrong, I give them a timeout or maybe a spanking, but the goal is what? The goal is correction. My hope is that by doing that, it will make them a better adult. And that's how we tend to think about all of what God does as well. We think, well, God doesn't punish, God corrects, right? God ultimately wants us just to get better. But the reality is that biblically speaking, there's also a category of punishment, that it is just and right for God to inflict punishment on those who have violated his commands, those who have sinned against him and who have broken his laws. In our culture, we still have punishment from time to time, don't we? We inflict punitive damages on people. If you go to court and uh, someone sues you and you've done something particularly egregious, they might not only make you pay back what you owe, but they might also inflict punitive damages. That's a way of saying you should have known better. You won't do it again. And we don't want anybody else to do this. It's also a way of saying justice is served. In our state, we still have capital punishment. Clearly capital punishment is not for the purpose of reformation or rehabilitation, right? It's for the purpose of punishment, even life imprisonment. So as we look biblically, there is a category that says God will punish, God will ultimately judge those who have sinned against him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, we don't often think about Jesus that way, do we? One day Jesus will come. Not only will he reward those who have followed him, he will pay back. Retribution means payback. Those who have sinned against him. You go to Revelation 19, we've talked about this before. You see Jesus coming in a robe dipped with blood and a sword comes out of his mouth and he destroys and judges the nations and then he calls the birds of the air to come and eat their flesh. You never saw that on a flannel board when you were a kid, did you, in Sunday school? We don't like to think about that. 
And yet the reality is the scripture says this is God's just righteous punishment. Why? Because when we sin, whether you, whether you lie, whether you cheat, whether you steal, whether you murder, you sin against an infinitely holy and perfect God. And it demands an infinite punishment. And so hell is God's just punishment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. After judgment, Jesus says, these will go to eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. And some have have tried to argue that that word punishment, it's kolotso in the Greek. Some have tried to argue, Rob Bell is one of them, that what that word really means is like discipline or correction. He goes back to the idea that it comes from a word that means to trim a tree. All right, but the problem is that when it meant to trim a tree, that was several hundred years before the New Testament was written. And over time, the word developed. And as you get to the New Testament, that word kolotso, punishment, it always refers to punishment, to punishing a criminal or to punishing somebody for something they've done wrong. And so what hell is ultimately is God's punishment upon those people who have rebelled against him, which let's face it, is everybody. It's every single one of us in this room. And so hell is God's just punishment. Hey, that's what scripture tells us it is. And as we go forward, all right, what we see is it's not only God's just punishment, but it is, it is terrible. All right, it was made for the devil and his angels is what Jesus says in this same chapter. I think that's interesting because again, we don't think that someday God is going to uh, rehabilitate the devil, do we? We don't imagine that one day we will see the devil with us in heaven. No, God created hell and that fire for the devil. The tragedy is that men and women who were never created for it will find themselves there because they choose to align with him. And so again, God punishes, not because he doesn't love his people, but because his people have rebelled. So hell is just, and then secondly, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. This is one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around because we don't have a concept really of what eternity is. You were born at a point in time. You imagine dying at a point in time. It's hard to imagine looking forward forever and ever into the future, whether you're in heaven or in hell. And so for some, this idea that you could be punished eternally for sins you commit on this earth is a real struggle for them. That really is the key problem that Rob Bell tries to wrestle with in his book. How could hell really be forever and ever and ever without end? Clark Pinnock, another uh, theologian who doesn't believe in the idea of eternal hell, says this, let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any moral standards. And I would love to to believe that. I would love to believe that it is finite. The problem is when I look at the scripture, I cannot get around the idea that hell is eternal. I can't get around it. I read passages and I go, the, the way to interpret those passages has to be that it is something that goes on forever and ever. A couple of passages, Revelation chapter 20. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so the same lake of fire where the devil goes to be tormented day and night forever and ever is where men and women will go if their names have not been written in the book of life. And there seems to be no indication that it ends. Matthew 25, 46. Again, we talked about that uh, a few minutes ago. And uh, in Matthew 25, 46, and also in Mark 9, Jesus talks about hell as a place where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, 46, it says, these go to eternal punishment, these go to eternal life. Most of us believe that heaven is forever, right? We believe that heaven goes on forever and ever. That's what eternal life means. And in the same context, in a parallel way, Jesus says, these over here go to eternal punishment. If we have eternal life, there is also eternal punishment. And so some have tried to argue that there's what's called annihilationism, that those who go to hell will just simply cease to exist. Others have tried to argue, no, you can get out of hell. Biblically, I don't see that. And I wish I did. But the reality is, again, as we look at this concept of eternal punishment, what we see is that when you have offended an infinite God, it requires an infinite penalty. Who you have offended matters. If you remember, we talked about this before. If, if you go and you murder a police officer, uh, the reality is your punishment will be stiffer than if you murder a criminal or a mobster, won't it? Whether that's fair or not, who you have offended, who you have sinned against makes a difference in the penalty. When we sin against an infinite, holy, eternal God, there is an infinite, eternal punishment. And I think the reason we struggle with hell is because we have a faulty view of God. We're told that God's only characteristic or his controlling characteristic is love. When in reality, God is also holy and he's, he's righteous and he's created a world in which he wants holiness and righteousness to reign and he cannot let sin there. And so biblically, this is why hell exists. Originally for the devil and his angels and sadly and tragically for those who align with them. So hell is eternal. And then thirdly, hell is terrible. Absolutely terrible. If you read the uh, comics in the newspaper back in the 80s and 90s, you probably ran across The Far Side by Gary Larson, right? One of the uh, uh, better known comic strips. And uh, Gary Larson was an interesting artist and he had this great one panel comic that was always fun to read. But one of his repeated themes uh, were comics about heaven and particularly about hell. And he would draw these things and hell always kind of looked funny, right? There were flames going and uh, the devil had his classic little pitchfork and the pointy ears, right? And the tail and all that kind of stuff. And there'd be guys that would turn to other guys and go, I really hate it in here, right? Or the coffee would be cold uh, or they'd have to do calisthenics forever and ever and ever in hell, right? Uh, Everybody plays the accordion, right? And he would play on all of these ideas and he would kind of make fun of the idea of hell. And the reality is that the reason that Gary Larson could do that uh, is because he didn't believe it was real. He didn't actually believe in it. And so so it, it became a joke. And as I thought about this concept, even this morning, you know, I thought, you know, usually I, I, I have a number of humorous illustrations throughout my messages. And I thought, I just can't this morning because I can't find anything funny about it. 
because it's, it's terrible. It's everlasting torment. Luke chapter 16 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus tells a parable of this rich man who goes to hell and then Lazarus, uh, the poor man who goes to heaven. And it says in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And the rich man said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. This man wants nothing more than to get out. And if he can't get out, he just wants a little drop of water just to briefly end the pain. And if he can't do that, then he wants his brothers not to come there. It's interesting, Jesus' response. He says, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, no, if someone comes from the dead, they'll believe. Jesus says, no. If they don't believe the word of God, Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if someone comes from the dead. It's a terrible place. A place nobody would want to go. Luke chapter 13 says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. It's a place of deep regret. Uh, The Bible constantly describes it in terms of darkness and then in terms of fire. And a lot of people have said, how could that be? How could it be fiery, but also dark? And uh, isn't that just metaphorical language? And maybe it doesn't really mean anything. And the reality is that it probably is metaphorical language, but the metaphors are not intended to imply something less than fire or darkness or regret. Instead, the metaphors are intended to imply and, and communicate. Think of the worst thing you can imagine, being burned alive being in perpetual darkness, being separated from God, being separated from life and joy and laughter, and then magnify it by thousands of times. And that's hell. And so biblically, it's a terrible place that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. And so if you've ever said, go to hell to a person without thinking about what you've said, It's a terrible thing to say. And I think often we minimize the reality of it because we'll we'll walk outside and say, man, it's it's hot as hell out here today. And it feels like that in Texas in July, doesn't it? Okay, but the reality is it's, it's not even close. Or this hurts like hell. No, no, it doesn't. Not even close. All of us have experienced pain in our life. Maybe uh, you've experienced uh, the death of a family member or a breakup that was particularly painful or physical pain that brought you to your knees. The scripture says hell is a place that is worse than any of that. It's terrible. And it goes on forever. And I wish I could avoid it from the scripture. I wish I could find a way to interpret it that says that's not the case. But as I've looked at the passages this week, I just cannot see any way to read these passages things that Jesus said other than to understand it that way. Okay, but the the good news is this. Not only is it eternal and terrible, not only is it God's punishment, but it's avoidable. It's avoidable. God has provided a way 
of escape. Second Peter 3.9 that we read earlier, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The question in the first century after a few years had gone by was why isn't Jesus coming back? Why isn't he already here? And this is Peter's answer. He's not slow. To him, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. Why is he waiting? He is waiting to have the maximum number of people come to repentance from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so when Jonathan Edwards preached that the reason you're sitting here this morning, the reason that you did not drop into hell last night, or this morning when you woke up, or here in church, when he preached that the the reason for that is what? It is that God, in his grace, holds you up. And for the unbeliever, the one who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, God is waiting and waiting to give them time because he's provided a way out. And what God has done is he's given his word to warn and to teach the truth about what he has done. Some of you may have at different points had your parents say something like, you're cruising for a bruising. You know that, that phrase, right? And I always thought that was a little bit of an odd phrase because it just pictures me, you know, hey, I want a bruising. You know, I'm cruising along. I'm looking for it, all right? And the idea, though, is this. The, the idea behind it is if you don't change your ways, if you don't turn that little car around, you're going to get in some serious trouble, all right? Biblically, this is the idea that God is waiting and waiting and communicating and preaching through his word and through his people so that men and women don't have to go to this place. It's avoidable. And what God has done in Jesus Christ is even though we are worthy of the wrath of God because everyone in this room has disobeyed him, God sent Jesus Christ to step in front of that wrath. And Jesus died on a cross. The eternal infinite son of God made an infinite sacrifice on your behalf and my behalf. He died for us in our place. And then he rose again and he defeated death and sin. First Peter chapter three. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. This is what Jesus has done. This is what we've been rescued from. Eternal separation from God. And Jesus stood in and he took the wrath of God. And because he is God's son and he is infinite, he's able to make an infinite sacrifice. And all who trust in him All who go to him for eternal life will have it. And so hell is avoidable. And if you don't yet know Jesus here this morning, my plea to you and and my message to you is this, that God has given Jesus Christ so you can have eternal life, so you can escape eternal condemnation and spend eternity with him. If you know him here this morning, Uh, We have been called to be ambassadors of this gospel so that men and women can escape it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And our task as believers in Jesus Christ is to go to those men and women who don't know him, And proclaim this message so they'll spend eternity with him. And if you're like me, uh, you have friends that don't know him. You have family who do not know him. 
And as I, as I looked at these passages this week, this was an emotionally exhausting sermon for me, one of the most exhausting that I've had to prepare for from that sense, because I, I don't like talking about hell. But I think Jesus talked about it, and I think Paul talked about it, and Peter, and all of the writers of the New Testament, so that we would recognize that God in Jesus Christ has reconciled us to him and given us eternal life, and so that we would be motivated now to go preach the good news of Jesus Christ so that men and women will be reconciled to him. We read from sinners in the hands of an angry God at the very beginning. Part of sinners in the hands of an angry God that often gets overlooked is the very ending of Edward's sermon. He says this, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting, while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart, while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? The bottom line of his sermon is this. There is a way out, and it's in Jesus Christ. And so we're called preach the message of the good news of Jesus Christ with all we meet, all we come across, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Because he came to rescue. He came to forgive. And he promises us eternal life if we'll believe. So difficult, painful, sobering truths, but necessary ones. And ones that move us to compassion and love for those who don't know him and to a deeper appreciation, hopefully, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word, even when it is hard. And God, we we love you, and we cannot thank you enough that in Jesus Christ we have rescue and eternal life. Father, many in here, including myself, have friends, have family who are as of now, headed for eternal separation from you in hell. So God, we pray that you would motivate us and move us to share Jesus. We pray that you would move in hearts and minds this morning, throughout this week, that you would rescue some from death and hell, that they might know you. Lord, let us never use the doctrine of hell as a stick to beat our enemies into submission, but instead allow it to be a prod to move us, to speak to them in love and grace and truth so that all might know Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, again for this time, and we pray be with us this week. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Have a wonderful week.